you have your Bibles, go ahead, open up to Joshua, Joshua chapter three. Thank you very much. A little bit of where we've been and where we're going. We just wrapped up a verse-by-verse study of the book of Daniel last week. Heading into the summer, we're going to be studying the book of Psalms. So all summer, we're going to have a, a tour of the book of Psalms, which is kind of a, an excavation of the human heart and an excavation of worship. I can't wait for it. In fact, the next two summers, we'll be doing that as we dig through a number of a, a variety of different styles and types of Psalms I think will minister to us well. Today, we uh, are in Joshua 3. How does a person grow? How does a person change? How does somebody go from where you are with the Lord to the, you know, I know a lot of you, from from where you are right now in your walk with Christ and the things God's done in your life, getting you to the point that you're at right now, to that next place, because honestly, as a follower of Christ, all of us desire to be growing, always, until the day the Lord takes us home. We want to be on this trajectory of, it's not the same as it was a year ago. I not only have learned new things, but I've, I've practiced new things. I've experienced newness, newness with Christ. There's a, there's a freshness in my faith. Just recently, I was in a conversation with a number of men from the church, and the question went around, what was a time in your life that uh, you just felt like you were walking the, the strongest you could, with, like the, the strongest you remember with the Lord? And uh, it was a great conversation, but I remember at one point, I, when it came to me, I said, honestly, I have to say I'm in that season right now. I feel like I, I, the Lord is doing new things in my life right now, and it's, it's powerful and it's good. And it, it, was, it was interesting to go around the room, and a number of the men that were on that phone call said, that's refreshing to hear, because I haven't been in a season where I feel like that's my experience with the Lord. Oftentimes we look backwards to old experiences we've had and we're kind of pulling from old, you know, old pools of water that we once walked in, but it's not necessarily fresh. How does a person grow? You know, uh, I've shared my wife and my story quite a bit with you all um, and I want to bring it up a little bit to you right now and we'll walk through it a bit later through through the message. My wife and I have adopted two beautiful little girls. And uh, I've shared this story. In fact, many of you have been in part of the church for a long time. Uh, you, you've walked that journey with us over a number of years. And I can honestly tell you that those two sweet uh, little girls, Joy and Mira, uh, is some of the greatest work God's done forming the gospel in my life, giving me an understanding of what it means to be adopted into the family of God. Romans chapter eight, because of what Jesus has done for me on the cross. What it means to live out uh, all the, the virtues of, what it, of, of loving on children and, and bringing them into your home. I've had the gospel formed in me in a way that I never would have experienced had I never taken that step. But I also know this, every step of that journey, and, and you know, they're, we've, they've been in our home for five years now, but every step of that journey from day one was a fearful step, if I can put it that way. Sometimes you look on people's lives from the outside and you, know, you hear the, the Facebook version of things, which is the really sweet pictures at the park, and it looks really great. But then there, there should be like the, the anti-Facebook, like what life is really like behind the scenes. That would be really helpful for everybody. I think that would lower depression rates in our country. The anti-Facebook, and that would show you actually the hardships of it and the fears of it and the unknowns of it. You know, when you step into foster care and adoption, you're stepping into a lot of attorneys, you're stepping into a lot of court appearances, you're stepping into a whole lot of people in your life, 
not having control over the influences and the inputs that are coming into these children that you're loving as if they're your own kids, bad influences coming in, and being angry over a system that doesn't work well and a system that neglects children. And for every incredible new thing I've learned about God along this journey, and by the way, and and then the story continues, right? And, And now you're raising children that have all types of of trauma related to coming from a previous home into your own home, but they're your daughters and you love them. And Okay, everything that God's done in me, forming the gospel through that experience, walking with my wife through all of that, through sweet days, difficult days, all of that would have been missed. I would have missed out on all of it if when I got to a scary place in my faith, when I felt like, God, like, I think I hear you telling me to go forward. But, but I don't necessarily have total, total certainty, but I think I tell, hear you telling me to go forward. If every time I came to that moment in my life, I said, you know, better play it safe. Better not take the, the quote, risk. See, the greatest risk is, is always not following the Lord and when he's telling you to step out in faith. That's the greatest risk you can ever have in your life. If I had said no at each of those junctures where I thought about saying no, or if my wife had said no at each of those junctures we thought about saying no, we would have missed out on some of the greatest growth in our life we've ever experienced in Christ, in family, in bonding with our church family. My point in sharing that and opening up this message with that story is is very simple. The, The Lord has not called us to a life of complacency. He's not called us to a life of sitting back and taking it easy and just kind of coming into church and going through the rhythms and the motions of things. In fact, if you really read the New Testament with, with, with fresh eyes, he's called you to a life of sacrifice. That, that is the call, to pick up your cross and follow Christ. The call is to, to give your life over the way Christ gave his life for you. Not to be the redeemer in other people's lives, but to in some ways be like Christ to a watching world. We take our cues from him. We love sacrificially like him. We step into broken, bold places where other people aren't willing to step in. Why? Well, because Christ has done that on our behalf already. And the greatest risk is always not following Christ in the sacrificial life that he's called you to in the risk-taking life that he's called you to. And so I, I, I want to ask a very simple question to each person in this room. Two, two questions. One, are you experiencing a fullness in Christ in your life? I think oftentimes we read the Bible and, and we, we hear these stories and we say, that sounds marvelous. It sounds nothing like what I live, but it sounds marvelous. And then, and then we kind of grow almost desensitized to our faith. We almost grow to a place in our walk with the Lord where we don't expect anything to happen. We just kind of back off the whole thing and say, well, look, it's not that, so let's just go to church on Sunday. And if, if the answer to that question is, you know what, Rafe, it's not marvelous. It's, it's not, there's not this, this freshness about it. Another question I have for you, is there any sacrifice in your faith? Is there any coming to a point where you say, you know, I probably wouldn't do that if it was just me? But I'm pretty sure the Lord's telling me to walk forward, so I'm going to go. And if the answer is no to that question, that will explain why the answer was no to the first question. Okay? Regular biblical Christianity is bold. Regular, regular biblical Christianity is not passive or weak. 
regular biblical Christianity is apostolic New Testament Christianity, which is stepping into broken places all around us and saying, we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We love Jesus. You can say what you want about us, but here we are, we're ready to love and serve. So let's get after the work. We're in Joshua chapter three today. Sweet little passage. It's been a number of years since I've opened this passage up with us, but I always come back to it as something kind of special, a reminder for me of what the Lord's called us to. Joshua chapter three, by the time you get to this, the people of God in the Old Testament, they were slaves in Egypt, and an entire exodus out of Egypt has taken place. They've left slavery. They've been wandering through the, year, the desert for 40 years. Now put yourself in their shoes. Imagine if it was just this crew, right? This group, we've... We've left slavery, and now we've wandered as an entire people for an entire generation for 40 years through the desert. But the Lord's provided. It's been miraculous. But because of disobedience on their part, every single person that had left Egypt has now died in the wilderness. And the only people that are left are new births that happened on, during the, the Exodus. It's new births that happened over the last 40 years. It's a whole younger crowd that didn't experience the Exodus except for a couple of people. And they're kind of looking back, and frankly, they're walking on the faith of their parents. That's what they are at this point. And now what they are, 40 years have passed, they're standing on the brink of the Jordan River. And they know from their parents, the Lord has promised you uh, your land. He's promised you Israel, this land that was, quote, flowing with milk and honey. He's promised you this wonderful thing in your life, and he's going to deliver it to you. And now, 40 years later, and by God's grace, their sandals haven't worn out. That was a miracle. God had been providing them with food, but they're standing at the Jordan River. It's this crossroads intersection of their life, and they're looking across the Jordan into Israel, and they're saying, that's the land. Now, what do we do? Now, the Jordan River, just so you know, depending, some of you have made a trip to Israel and you've seen the Jordan. Depending on what season of the year you see the Jordan River at, it can either flow like a little creek in your backyard or it can flow like the Mississippi River when it's raging. On this particular day, when we read Joshua chapter three, we read in verse 15 that the Jordan River was overflowing all of its banks at the time that this point of the story took place. So when you hear about the Jordan, think mighty rushing Mississippi. Many of you have seen that, okay? This is not easy to cross, what I want to try to do today is give us two principles for bold Christian living out of Joshua chapter three, okay? What's your first principle? If you want to live a bold life for Christ, you must regularly consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself. What do I mean from that? Let's read Joshua three, verses one to six. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. Who's Joshua? Joshua took over from Moses as the new leader of the people of God. Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel. And they lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, between you and the ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, here it is, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Let me read that again. Consecrate yourselves. He's looking to a whole crowd like this. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant, pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now, remember the setting. They're at the Jordan River, but there's a challenge. There's a rushing 
mighty river between them and where God's called them to do. That's their first obstacle. Now, what are they going to do? They could go out. They could try to build a bridge. They could go out. They could try to find another way to cross. They know they have to get from here into the promised land. And the very first thing Joshua tells the people to do, before he says do anything else, is consecrate yourselves. What does consecrate yourselves mean? Well, the exact details of it, we kind of piece together from other passages in the Bible of what consecration would have meant back then. It would have had something to do with cleansing, ritually cleansing themselves. It, kind of, it was like a mini baptism of sorts they used to do in the Old Testament days where you'd kind of ritually purify yourself by taking a bath, essentially. And it was a sense of kind of getting the defilement of the world off you. In order to prepare your heart, the whole thing was about your heart, to prepare your heart for what the Lord might do in this new season of your life. So it would involve some ritual purification. It also would have involved a lot of prayer. It would have involved families coming together and reciting scripture over each other and and over their children. It would have been a prayer-filled moment where the people of God said, okay, God's about to do something spiritual in nature. And in order for me to be a part of that very thing he's about to do, because it's going to be miraculous, he's going to show up, because he said he was, he's going to do something amazing. And if I'm going to see it, and I'm going to feel it, I'm going to be a part of it, I need to prepare myself for that holy event that I'm going to step into. All through the Bible, we see moments where God prepares his people for a holy event. When Moses, for example, stood before God with the burning bush, and what was the first thing God told Moses to do? Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. It's this moment of saying, look, Moses, what, what you're stepping into right now is bigger than you. God's about to do something and recognize it and prepare your heart for what he's going to do. What does this mean for us? Well, if we're going to be a people of God that are expectant for God to do something remarkable, right? This is an expectant, God's going to do something remarkable thing. And, and again, the prayer is not about the no cards. The, the prayer is about, God, would you save a people? W- would you go out into this city and, and, and bring about a peace in the midst of violence and, and grow your church so that the church becomes the culture makers in the city? That, that, that's, a, that's a bold, miraculous prayer to pray. But if we're going to live with an expectation, we, we have to learn from the people of God, you don't just go out and do the work and not consecrate yourselves. That's a recipe for disaster, See, if you look out on pretty much all the ministries that have fallen that I know of, and and you don't have to look beyond our own city. I've watched pastor after pastor fall in this city and ministry after ministry fall in this city. Why? What's happening there? Well, there's an inauthenticity and a lack of prayer taking place. There's a lack of consecrating yourself for the work that you're participating in. Because when you step into that kind of work and you haven't prepared your heart, mm, you're ready to fall. That's going to be a bad situation. Now, Many of us make two mistakes here. We want to do great things. The first mistake is this. We want to do great things for God. I fall into this trap all the time, all the time. And here's what happens. You're sitting back and and you hear a sermon like this, or or you're reading, you know, a great devotional book or whatever you're reading, and you get in your heart, I want to do something great for God. I want to, I want to change the world for, do you know how many times I've done this in my prayers? Like, I want to change the world for, right? I feel that. And, and, And you think, I want to, I want to get out there and do something remarkable. And the great mistake is, is, is that God's not actually asking you to get out there and do something remarkable in that sense. What he's asking you to do is to consecrate yourself before the Lord because he's about to do something remarkable before you. And when we switch that, what happens is we, we, 
we, we end up using God to serve our own agenda. When, when your heart is, I want to do something great for God, that's not necessarily wrong. God can use that wonderfully, but it misses the first step. And it makes you make a number of mistakes along the way, all of which I've made many times, even this last week. What the heart of a godly person is, is saying, God, I'm, I'm hungry for you to do something bold in my life. I'm hungry for you to answer that prayer for this person. And here's what I'm doing. I'm, ex- I'm kind of expecting you to do it, Lord. So I'm preparing my heart to see how you'll use, use me in that process. I'm consecrating myself. First mistake is that we rush out and we forget to consecrate ourselves. The second mistake we do, though, is that we kind of lose the urgency that the Israelites had. There's no urgency to our ministry. There's no urgency to our life. We think we have all the time in the world. You know, you look at these Israelites. What what does he say? Joshua said, take up, uh, no, go back. When when he says to consecrate yourselves, verse five, consecrate yourselves, why? For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. That's an urgent plea. That's looking out and saying, God's gonna do this tomorrow, so don't wait to consecrate yourself tomorrow. That'll be too late. You, you consecrate yourself now. You live with an expectation now. You're in the present now. And if you wait, one of, my, one of my favorite old hymns, there's this line that says, if you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you'll never come at all. It's this idea of saying, if you're just waiting for the next moment, you're waiting for that season in your life where you finish your degree, or you finish that degree, or the next degree, or you're waiting until you're married to someone, or you're waiting until you have kids, you're waiting until your kids are through the season they're in, or, there will always be another thing to wait on. The day is now. Salvation is today. And the Lord's invited you into a place of consecration with an eager expectation that the Lord's gonna do something tomorrow. Not the day after tomorrow, tomorrow or today. And I wanna be prepared for it when he shows up so I don't miss the glory of it because I'm made for that, right? As New Testament followers of Christ, we're made to be right in the center of what God's doing. And you don't wanna miss it. Practically, we must consecrate ourselves. We've got to live a life that, that demonstrates that we're not just running around like chickens with their head cut off trying to be busy with church, that we're doing the hard work of the men and women who have gone before us of being on our knees in prayer. It, it's interesting how many people I talk to. You know, as a pastor, the, every time I meet with somebody, and this is for all my staff, they know this, there's, no matter how the conversation goes, there's always one question you've got to ask. How's your time in the Word? How's your time in prayer? You've got to ask those questions, and as long as you do that, it's a good meeting, okay? Most times when I ask, how was your time in prayer? The answer I get is, I have a little prayer here and there. I'll pray on the bus, you know, I'm holding it, and I'll pray. And, I, and what I always say is, that's wonderful. That's incredible, I'm so glad that you're developing this prayer life and it's not to minimize it. Every prayer is sweet and precious. God is honored in all of our simple prayers. But one of the follow-up questions I always have is, if I were to look at your knees right now, would there be any scratching or kind of calluses from being on your knees in fervent prayer before the Lord? And very rarely do I hear yes to that question. And, and what I see that is, is, is not, a, not a guilt. This is not guilt, be on your knees in prayer. This is, I, I think the Bible invites us into this miraculous place of walking with God as God does remarkable things around us. I think that's the regular invitation for people of God through the Old and the New Testament. And if there is no fervent prayer in your life where, where you're calling out hungrily to the Lord, then 
then God's gonna do a whole lot of remarkable things around you and you'll have no idea because you'll lose your sensitivity to the spirit of what he's doing. I, uh, I read an article at the beginning of COVID. Uh, you know, the pastors when COVID started two years ago, we're all fervently trying to figure out what do we do? Like we didn't have this camera when, when COVID started. We, you know, there were a hundred things we weren't doing that we're doing now because you just have to you know, figure it out. And all the pastors were in a room trying to just be like, okay, you're gonna do that. We're gonna start a podcast. We're gonna start a blog. We're gonna start, right? We're gonna get a YouTube channel and getting all the work done. And then our global pastor, Dave Childers, who I love, Dave sent this pastor of a, uh, this article of a missionary and it just totally convicted me. The, the, the article was this missionary who was ministering to people up on some snowy mountaintop in somewhere. I don't know where it was. But a, a huge snowstorm at the beginning of winter came. And every day he was making this trip up and down at the top of the mountain to go minister to these people that were living in a remote village. Well, this snowfall came that lasted the whole winter and he got stuck away from the tribe he was ministering to. He had just started a church up there. He now was, now was away from them. And he had this moment where he said, okay, I've got to get through I can't leave them up there by themselves for six months until the snow melts. And he, he set out immediately. He's like, I got to dig my way through this. And then he realized that was completely foolish. There was no way to dig his way up, up, up a mountain. And so he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to commit the next six months to prayer for those people. I have no idea what's happening. I'm blind to it. I can't see it. But I'm just going to pray and ask God to move. The snow melts at the end of the season. He makes his way up the mountain. The church has quadrupled in size. They've reached more people in their community. The people are hungry, practicing the, the values and the, the scriptures and reading and, and leadership has risen up in the church. And he, and he writes to people living over here now saying, look, don't forsake the work of prayer. You want to see lives change? Do it on your knees. That's the first step is consecrate yourselves. We have to live with a hungry urgency for what God is about to do. John chapter four, verse 35 to 36 says, do, you, do not say, this is Jesus, there are yet four months, then come the harvest. Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Here, here's part one. You wanna live a bold life for the Lord. You wanna live a bold life of Christian faith. You have to consecrate yourself. You have to do the spiritual work of beginning to develop a prayer life. Now, at this church, we talk about this very regularly. Prayer is not a, a tack-on or add-on in the Christian faith. This is part and parcel of what it means to be part of a church. Every Sunday morning from 8.15 to 8.45, we pray. As a church, over in that corner, right outside, kind of where the bathroom area is right there, we have chairs set up, and we pray. And we're asking the Lord, Lord, would you show up? And I invite you into that regularly. And that time has been growing. We also pray every day at noon. Every day at noon, we pray. We've been doing that for a year and a half now. We've been praying every day at noon on Zoom. And you're all invited into that. You don't even have to pray out loud just to be in the room a few times a week and pray with us. Why? Because what are we doing? We're preparing our hearts and, and, and waiting expectantly that the Lord might show up. All right, principle number one, consecrate yourself. Principle number two, you gotta get your feet wet, <laughs> okay? You consecrate yourself and then you gotta get your feet wet. Let's read verses seven to 13. So the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they might know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. 
So picture this. The command is, take the Ark of the Covenant with these men and then go stand in the, in the raging river. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Now, I've always found this fascinating. How are they going to get across? He says, look, go stand in the river. Put yourself in a position where if God does not do something miraculous again, your men are going to drown and the ark's going to get washed away. Put, put yourself in a position where you're standing in the water with wet feet and then God's going to cut off the Jordan River and he's going to do a miracle among you and you're going to be able to cr cross the Jordan River on dry ground. Now, why did God instruct them to do it this way? Think about this for a moment. He could have done anything. He could have said, if you just wait four more months, you've waited 40 years, if you wait four more months, the river is going to be like a little creek and you can all get across pretty easily. So just bear with me, just wait, okay? He could have done that. He didn't do that. He could have said, build a bridge. Now, I don't know if they could have done that back then with engineering in those days, it's a big river, but he could have said, find a narrow place, build a bridge, it'll take four months, you can get your whole, your whole crew across. He didn't say that. What he told them was he said, get your feet wet. Now, why did he do that? Well, I think there's a good reason why he did that. Number one, this is a very similar miracle to what he did with the people of God when they left Egypt. They, they, they crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, one of the greatest miracles outside the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. An entire group of people fleeing Egypt, the waters part, and they crossed through that Red Sea. Now, now here's what's remarkable. All the people that experienced that have already died. They all died in the wilderness. And now there's a group of people that are living on the coattails of the faith of the people that had gone before them that had seen it with their own eyes. They've heard the stories from other people, but they haven't tasted it. They've heard the stories of what God did here, but, but they haven't actually seen it that, the way that they saw back here. So one of the things God's doing, he's saying, look, let's remind them that the same God who did that back in the Red Sea is the very same God who's with you today. And he can do it again. And he will. And I want you to taste the power of that. So you get in the sea. You get in the river. You get your feet wet. And let's see what God does when your ankles are wet with the water. And so they step out in faith. The first thing he's doing is he's showing them the same God who is back there is with you now. I, a while ago, this was years ago, I was just beginning to, be, to get training to be a pastor. And I was sitting with a group of guys. And, and one of the older guys who was just graduating from seminary, we were sitting with the senior pastor of Park at the time. And, and the pastor asked um, just about how we were doing and about you know, what we were learning. And this, this senior seminarian, he, he said, you know, one thing God has just struck me with, I've been reading the Bible recently and seeing these miracles, and he said, I, it, just, it just clicked with me this week that the very same God that was able to deliver David 
And the very same God that was with Elijah on Mount Carmel, that's the same God with me. He hasn't changed. It's like I'm reading my family's story. And all these years, even through seminary, I've been reading the stories and I know the stories, but it's like he's a different God with me than he is with them. And he said, I just realized this week that when I'm praying to God, I'm praying to the same God who who ministered to David. That's incredible. And And he said, it's changing the way I pray and I think that's what God's doing in this scene. When he says, get your feet wet, he's saying, look, remember who I am. It's the same God. I haven't changed. But then he's also doing something else. He's saying, one of the normal ways that God moves is that you step out in faith where you believe God's leading you to. And you get your feet wet. And you put yourself in a position where if God doesn't show up, I'm going to look a little foolish right now. And if God doesn't show up right now, well... I don't know what's going to happen because this is going to be pretty difficult. But you get your feet wet and you step into it and then you expect him to show up. And because you've consecrated yourself, when he shows up, you then see it and you don't miss it. And so the second mistake we make beyond not consecrating ourselves is we never get our feet wet. Notice they didn't know how this was going to end exactly. All they knew is that God had called them to take the step of faith and step into the waters. Let's read what happens. Verse 14 to 17, Joshua chapter 3. So when the people set out, their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water. Now there's that verse. The Jordan overflows all of its banks throughout this time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. What did God do? He showed up. What did God do? He called them to take the step of faith. Then they take a step of faith. And then God shows up and does something remarkable. Now, what's the next step? Now they have this faith. It's this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. Now they're all marveling as they walk on dry ground across the Jordan River. And they look around and then they get into the new land. And where do you think the faith came to rush into some of these battles and to march around Jericho and to go into battles where they were outnumbered 100 to 1? Where do you think that faith came from? It was because after they had consecrated themselves, they literally watched as they had stepped into the Jordan River and the waters got cut off, and then they saw God's goodness. And that faith kept them going all the way through because they kept looking back, look at what God's done. Don't forget the stories of what he's done in your life. I think so often we forget the stories, don't we? God does a miracle in your life. He does something that you just, you have that moment where you say, he did it. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And all of us, if you're a follower of Christ for any number of years, you've got those stories. But then you get into the next situation. It's like God's never done any of that in the past. It's like blank slate with God. I wonder if he can do it. And what faith is, is faith is this cumulative building of watching God show up in your life. Watching him ministering to your children's needs. Watching him heal marriages around you. 
watching him take care of you and you didn't know how that situation was going to work. And, you know, I'm thinking of some of these stories that I know from this church, the apartment, and it was a terrible situation and we didn't know what the, you know, the roommate situation was. And then you're just praying, God, I don't know how to fix this knot. Will you fix it for me? And then he fixes it. And if we don't pause and look when you're walking through the dry ground and look at the water heaped up on either side and say, don't forget this. Then you get, to the next, you get to the next turn in the course that God's got for you, and it's like you're at a blank slate again. You gotta remember what he's done. Every great spiritual work in our lives, God will, not always, but for the most part, ask you to get your feet wet first. Think of a few other stories from the Bible. Remember the bleeding woman in the New Testament? This old sweet lady had an issue of bleeding for 12 years. The Lord knew that was going on for 12 years, but what does she do? She, she, she kind of makes herself a fool she, she, she fights her way through Jesus in the middle of a panicky situation where a 12-year-old girl had just passed away and she just reaches out and touches his cloak. And what happens? She's healed immediately. She, she got her feet wet. She, she stepped out in faith and said, okay, everyone's gonna think I'm crazy, but I just have to touch his shirt. That's getting your feet wet. Think of, think of Abraham. Abraham is called to go up on a mountain and sacrifice Isaac. Now, that, that story always takes my breath away. I got three girls. I, I can't imagine doing anything like that. I don't have that much faith. I don't think I do. I don't know. I know when I read that story, I'm overwhelmed by it. But, but Ab- God's got Abraham with a, with a dagger over his head before, before he says, Abraham, stop. <laughs> Let's bring a substitute in that you're not going to take your life, your child. And what is that? Abraham's getting his feet wet. He says, I know what God's called me to. And he actually says, when you read the New Testament, we get the sense that Abraham went up that mountain with the command from God to sacrifice his son, but he also knew he was gonna be coming down the mountain with his son. That's the Bible. He didn't know how, but he was just gonna follow the Lord, and it wasn't until his feet were completely wet that the Lord said, we're ready to go. Let's stop that. Modern Christians hate to get their feet wet. We hate it. We hate in general to get our feet wet. I would never want wet shoes, to be honest with you. I think anytime I see in a movie people walking across the river with wet feet, I think that's crazy. I would have taken my shoes off. But in real life, in spirituality, we hate getting our feet wet as well. We just don't like taking that step of faith. We hate to feel the current against our feet. We, we hate to feel like this thing can wash me away. And you know what? I'm carrying the Ark of the Covenant. You know, I've, I've got, you know, uh, I've got a, a nice bank account and I, I've got a nice job and I've, got, I've built some nice you know, networks here and, and this thing could wash me away if I really take another step into the river. I don't know if I necessarily want to do that. We hate to get our feet wet. Why? Well, what it reveals is there's kind of a lack of faith because I think that's what faith is, isn't it? It's believing God for the things you can't see with your eyes. And when an entire generation builds their faith on only the things they can see with their eyes, It's no wonder we're in the predicament the church is in today. If there's no stepping out and getting your feet wet, if there's no feeling the curtain against your legs, if there's no tears with the challenges you're going through in life, and then you just say, well, is there any faith at all? God's called you to get your feet wet. No risk, no blood, no sweat, no, no early mornings, no late nights, no tears. What kind of Christianity is this? The Bible I read is a group of people that were regularly living with an eager anticipation that they're just going to get their feet wet and just see what God does. And he showed up over and over again. And that's the story of my life. 
I can tell you every time I have gotten my feet wet, I've watched over and over God show up in ways I didn't expect him to, not the ways I was hoping he would. And so when I ask the question, do you ever read the Bible and think, you know, that's someone else's story, it's not mine. <laughs> These miracles, you know, seeing God. If the answer is, yeah, I, I, I don't live that way and I don't get my feet wet that often. Maybe that's why we're not seeing God do the things in our life and in our churches that we're hungry and we talk about wanting to see him do. If we never consecrate ourselves, there's no fervent prayer, there's no communal prayer. We're never on the Zoom prayer during the day. If there's no then stepping out in faith, well, what do we expect? A few weeks ago, I, I, I had a chance to teach at a men's ministry out in the suburbs. What a fun morning that was, just a great group of guys. And I got there, and I was teaching out of uh, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy a story of a young man named Phineas who just had all the zeal in the Lord. And I, I gave this charge to the men. I say, men, look, the Lord has called you to step up, and he has called you to pursue with zeal for the Lord, living a life on fire for God. And wherever you see the glory of God being tarnished or being made fun of, to step in and do something about it, because you're a man, and you've been given this responsibility to lead through these things. It was a great morning. And then at the end of the morning, we were going around just kind of debriefing, and probably 30, 35 guys in this room. And an older man, I think he was probably about 70 years old, is my guess. He raised his hand, and he said, I have wasted so many years of my life. He said, I have not been in a room of men like this for nearly 40 years. He goes, I've, I've walked away from my faith. He, and, and there was something in him that morning. He said something like this. He said, I, I, want, I want to live the rest of my days with this zeal for the Lord. Now, now here's, here's the precious reality of the gospel. Ready for this? Watch this. Not one, not one bit of Jesus is looking down on that 70-year-old man who has been passive for the last 40 years and not one bit of God is saying, man, you know, you really, waste, you really wasted 40 years. You could have been doing, doing better. That's, that's not God's. God's looking down on a man who's just put his faith in Jesus and he's looking at him with a beaming smile saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I've got a number, I've got some work for you to do with the years you got left in your life. He's not looking back on the wasted years, God. And he's not saying, look at, look at the mistakes you made. Look at the, the lack, the passivity you had, the lack of courage you had, all those moments that, that I was nudging you and you didn't do it. He's not looking at you going like, man, this, this guy's useless. I got, I got nothing left. I mean, I really, you know, he's, he's only good for the kitty game. That's not the God we serve. The, the, the God we serve is that when you pray, when that man at 70 years old who wasted 40 years of his life by his own words comes to the Lord and says, Lord, I'm in. The Lord says, good, because I got some work for you to do. Let's get busy with it. And then you begin this life of walking with the Lord. This is the sweet reality of the gospel. Jesus gave his life on the cross that your sins would be forgiven in full, past, present, future. Every wrongdoing, every mistake, every rebellion, every scar you have and every scar you've caused in someone else's life, when you place your faith in Jesus, it's done away with in full. No more to be brought up again. It's not recalled. Your sins are separated you from you as far as the east is from the west. It's the good news of the scripture. And then, this is, the, this is incredible. Then not only are you forgiven, but he comes and God puts essentially the medal of honor on your, on your shoulder. And he says, now, now you're in. And I've got work for you to do. 
And you're invited into the building of God's kingdom here in the midst of this city, here in the midst of wherever God's called you to. I haven't saved you for you to sit passively on the sidelines. I've saved you to get your feet wet. So let's get your feet wet. That's the gospel. Now, what do we do with this? Let me give us a couple applications. Let me give you three applications. Number one, I mentioned at the beginning that my wife and I have adopted two children. Uh, at this church, there is a movement of adoption and foster care and, and becoming safe families. In fact, is Courtney Boyd here? Courtney, are you in the room right now? Are you? I know Dean is. No? All right. Dean's wonderful wife. Dean, step up. Just stand up so we can see you real quick. We love you, Dean. His, his wonderful wife, Courtney, and Dean have been safe families for a while, uh, stepping in. And now Courtney actually just took a job working for safe families, and we're so excited for her. A number of you have been sensing the Lord calling you to step into some kind of orphan care for a long time. And the reason you've been sensing that is because you're part of this church, and we talk about that all the time. And the Lord, I just know, many of you have already taken that step. Some of you have not taken that step yet. Can, let me tell you some of the best advice I got when I was thinking about this early on, my wife and I got if you never get certified to be a foster parent, you can never say yes to take a child into your home. It's that easy. If you never get certified, you can never say yes. Once you're certified, you can always say no. But you can't say yes if you don't get certified. Here's a step one for you. Go get your feet wet. Get certified to take a child into your home. It's the work the church has done for millennia. And with the way things are going in our country, on the topic of abortion and on the topic of this topic, there's a lot of work coming for Christians to do, stepping into caring for orphans in this country. Get certified, get your feet wet. Some of you, you need to take a step of faith and get your feet wet by participating in this cork board this summer. And what the Lord is telling you to get your feet wet is, is not to dismiss the fact that I invited you to put a card on this board by the time summer's over. Because I know this. When I talk about sharing your faith, it's the liver on the menu. No one wants to eat the liver on the menu. It is. And I can tell you, I've told the story. First time I went out with people from Campus Crusade sharing my faith, I got lockjaw. I, I was so nervous. I couldn't this. I was embarrassed. And they looked at me and they laughed and they said, it's okay, let us just do it. We'll just follow us. That's how hard it was for me. And now I can't wait to get on the streets. That's a, that's a part of my regular weekly rhythm. If you never get your feet wet and just have lockjaw for a moment, you're never gonna learn how to do this thing, okay? There is a note card that needs to have your name on it by the end of the summer. Get your feet wet. Start praying. Who is it that God has put in my life that I need to share the gospel with, that I just need to have a spiritual conversation with? Lastly, an issue that I see plaguing, especially young Christians, commit commit. I think there, there's something going on in culture, and I, I, I haven't pinpointed how this happened. Uh, I, I, sociologists actually have been doing a lot of work on this, just kind of pinpointing how do we get to this culture that is so noncommittal. Uh, we talk about, you talk about marriages, like dating relationships that are going like, like, like long, longer than they ever have before. You talk about uh, people becoming a part of a church, like taking longer to get plugged in. What, where is the, the non-committal? There's lots of reasons for it, but it's happening on an entire cultural-wide level. And we're trying to trace, how did this happen? Can I tell you, as followers of Christ, there's a commitment to your local church that should be happening. And, and part of getting your feet wet is saying, I'm not gonna kind of just dance around this. I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna be a member. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a member and I'm gonna own some part of the ministry of this place. I'm gonna be part of the team that greets people, part of the team that collects the offering. I'm gonna be part of the team that worships on a Sunday. If you never actually take that step and commit, then you really are missing out on all the opportunities to really get your feet wet around you because it all happens in the context of a local church. That's how God works. My prayer for you as we leave today is not that you'd run out these doors and you think, how can I go win the world to Christ? That's not it. My prayer for you and for all of us is that we would consecrate ourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among us. Amen? Here's what we're gonna do. Let me invite you to stand up right now as I invite the band to come up. We ran a few minutes late today and I apologize for that, but let's spend a moment just consecrating ourselves right now. I'm gonna invite you, as the band begins to play our last song of worship, I'm gonna invite you to, if you're comfortable with it, hold your hands open like this. If that makes you uncomfortable, totally good. Keep your hands wherever they are. But this is a posture of submission to the Lord and receiving from the Lord. And I'm gonna invite you to just pray a prayer after me. And you just do it silently in your own minds. The Lord hears your silent prayers. Lord, I, I desire to consecrate myself. I desire to present myself before you as, as ready to be used in your kingdom. I don't, I don't want to be a passive Christian. I don't want to miss out on the opportunities you're inviting me into to take a step of faith. I want to love God with my whole heart. I want to have a zeal for the things of God. I want to hunger after Christ-likeness. And so God, we just present ourselves to you. We say, God, have your way with us. We don't know all the answers. We don't know how, the, how you work, the mysteries of how you work exactly. But we know you're powerful. I want to give you a moment. Every person in this room has any number of burdens they're carrying right now. Just list them out to the Lord, the God who parts the waters. List them out to him. As you list them out, hear the Lord acknowledging them, saying, I know already. I know everything, says the Lord. Lord, in the midst of the brokennesses that we walk through, we, we hunger for your answer to our prayers. We hunger for your response to the loved ones we have that are hurting. We hunger for your response into the situations we're in that we don't know how they get resolved. And we present ourselves to you. We love you, Lord. Have your way with us.